Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Claire McKenna. You're listening to Changemakers, the podcast series that talks to people who stand up, speak out, or challenge us to think a little differently. My guest today is Audrey Crawford, a humanitarian aid worker. She began volunteering at homeless centres and with direct provision as she completed her anthropological studies. She then went on to manage teams and camps building community programmes across the globe in countries such as Yemen, Liberia and other countries across Africa and at the time of recording is interviewing to go to Afghanistan. Audrey has a deep understanding of the social, political and cultural aspects of fragile states, refugees, migrants and people in displacement settings and she's worked for over 15 years in domestic and field posts including covering Ebola, cholera and COVID health emergencies. Her focus is protection and helping rebuild communities during times of conflict, poverty and disease. As you'll hear, Audrey has always been pulled in some way towards this work and she doesn't in any way view herself as a hero donning a cape and heading off to fix these poor, poor people, but more about building a coalition with people who are her equal who have just found themselves in particular circumstances. And a deep understanding that the lottery of where you're born and the circumstances around that can be outside of your control and can happen to anyone at any time. Audrey's work is very much who she is. Wherever she is in the world, she views it as her home until she returns to Ireland to see family and friends. But she fully immerses herself wherever she is. And this is her calling in life. So Audrey Crawford, you are very welcome to Changemakers. Thank you, Claire. It's lovely to be here. So before we get into the, the work that you do, and I know you're, you're hoping to, to get to Afghanistan and, and do what you, what you do best very soon, but can I talk about you growing up and when you maybe became aware that there was inequality in the world or that there were places in the world that, that needed help? I suppose some of my earliest memories would be my mother volunteered at a refuge centre for um, women survivors of domestic violence. So I remember her going there and doing different activities to be able to raise, you know, awareness or get items to support the shelter and the women. I think back at the time they were called battered wives. I suppose um, injustice has always been something that riled me. Even at the age of 11, I took out the school bully um, because he was always intimidating other people. So not that I'm advocating violence or anything like that, but seeing him threaten other people, you know, mobilized me into action. Um, And then I think I've always, you know, been racial discrimination. And I think maybe perhaps colonialism. I studied history all through school and knowing about colonialism and the Irish context and the injustices that happened through that also, you know, were a, a motivation for me to take more of an interest in it. 
And then I think as a teenager, I only recall this recently with friends, we joined Interact, which was like a junior group of the Rotary Club, which was, you know, it's kind of community based activities. You come together to kind of have fun and socialize, but you do activities to raise awareness or to raise funding for different projects. So we would have gone carol singing or had fashion shows to raise money for Bernardo's or we had, you know, Christmas parties for the elderly down at the local school and stuff like that. So as I said, we were, you know, doing community-based activities, but we were also doing it, having wild fun as well. So <laughs> I wasn't a big crusader or anything like that. And when did things start to change? When did you start seeing this as being something that could become your, your work and, and what you do? Um, so after school, I, you know, I had wanted to go to college, but I went to San Francisco for the summer intending to come back to go to college. And I think I wanted to do history and English and Trinity. And I ended up getting business and agriculture and Galway Tech. So I decided I'm going to stay here for a bit longer. An education of a different kind. So I ended up staying in San Francisco and I got a green card straight away um, and lived there for about five years. You know, and again, I lived quite a hedonistic lifestyle, but at some point I think I was also impacted by when I was finishing school, the Balkan Wars had taken place and the Rwandan genocide had was in around 94. So at some point, I this kind of drive to, to want to do something or to go back to education motivated me. So and I also didn't like American foreign politics. So I gave back my green card and came back to Ireland when I was 24 and then applied, you know, looked around for a while to think about what was the best course of action. And then I applied to go to college when I was, I think I started when I was 26. So lots of people will think I want to do something, I want to help, but don't know quite how to go about it. So how did you navigate that and and, and find how you could arm yourself to to go and actually help? I guess after I'd studied, so I did a degree, a degree and a master's in anthropology. And I think at that time I had decided I wanted to, you know, charge off and join the UN because in my naive understanding of what was going on out there, that was the one body that, you know, seemed to go in and try. You were thinking from the top down. Well, just uh, it was I, because I didn't know a huge amount about, you know, the humanitarian or development industries that basically that was the one international body that you would always hear about that was going into different crises or, you know, um, areas to try and whether it was with their peacekeepers or other activities trying to go in to work on the situation. So you would always wanted to go in on the ground and help at that level? Yes. Um, and but, I, you know, life also got in the way. So doing my, you know, degree and um, masters after that I'd wanted to go overseas but at that point it's very chicken and the egg you've got you know you've got the skill set but you don't have the experience and without the experience you can't you know can't get a job so I continued doing what I'd been doing and I'd been working in the hospitality industry while I was putting myself through college so I think the turning point came which was the the Irish citizen referendum of 2004 and the basically it was the, the referendum was put forward because in about 2002 the biggest numbers of asylum seekers had started coming into the country i think it was maybe 11,000 and the government started to freak out thinking everybody was coming here just to have their baby so they could get irish citizenship so again and this is 
also the, always demonizing the most vulnerable. So, you know, they put it to the population to say, you know, should we change our laws that you won't, you know, furthermore, just by being born on the island of Ireland doesn't give you direct, give you citizenship. And the country voted for it. And I was, you know, completely aghast, I think, for a country that has sent people to every corner of the world from all the, you know, challenges that we've had here. It was just complete culture amnesia that as soon as some people tried to come in here, look for support and we shut down the borders. And what do you remember about the campaign around that at the time? Because sometimes in, in anything like that, it depends on how it's put to the people. And that's quite sad, but true. And I think that's, you know, that basically the genesis of what we're seeing today or the origins did start back then because I, I would never have classed Irish people as, you know, or the Irish society as racist because I always found Irish people very inquisitive and interested in other people who are different. But this was the time where the media and the government and whoever the policymakers were at the time were, were creating the other. So, you know, it wasn't that a person was coming in that you would meet that had suffered. It was these people, they were a group to be dehumanized so that you could, you know, not see them as people coming in to need assistance. And the same thing is going on today when we talk about immigration and the populist, you know, the populist movements against it. And, it, you know, it is. And I think that's one of the worst things about society today is that turning regular people against, you know, to distrust other people coming in for support when really it's the the people in power that we should be challenging because of the inequalities that are going on. I agree with you. And we don't seem to have empathy at the heart of, of what we do. And we're concentrating so much on the economic that it just doesn't make sense when there's plenty to go around. And that's why when you see talk of the refugee crisis, we hear we're all a population of the globe we don't have to be you over there and us over here and it can all be worked out and I don't think that's naive I think policy could be led in that way to make that all okay and and not have that us and them side of things so we'll get back to that throughout the conversation I'm sure but when you left college then what was your first step what is the skill set that you amass I mean they can't necessarily send anybody and everybody who just has a good heart out to help can they you need a certain skill set yeah so they are looking for skill sets so I started after the referendum then I started to volunteer I think the next day I went out to volunteer so I volunteered in a refugee center in St. Peter's Church in Phibsborough where they had a refugee out outreach program and a drop-in center so I volunteered there for a year while I continued you know, working in the hospitality industry. And then I'd say it was I was probably there for a year and then I applied for a job with an Irish nonprofit organization, Sparassi. So I got a job as a project worker up in Mosney Accommodation Centre, the direct provision centre, doing a referral into psychosocial services. I had a drop-in centre to support with community development and psychosocial support for people living in direct provision. So I stayed there for four years um running that program and what did you learn there what's different from the theory to the practice i mean under the uh, the you don't necessarily you know to work overseas in in international development you know there's a wide range of starter courses that you could have gone into or undergraduate degrees that you could start with it many in the social science political science 
as I said, I did anthropology, and anthropology is the kind of comparative study of cultures and societies. So whereas I think everybody has the, tr the idea that you're just looking at traditional tribal societies, but it looks at everything from very remote communities and how their social structures are to, you know, organizations on Wall Street and what the culture are of what's going on in there. So it's just to be able to understand differences and human movements to be able to interpret it and bring it back, and which also helps to, you know, absolve bias and really teach you that you're not the center of the universe. Yeah, and people are people no matter where they're from. And there's so many similarities between... There's more similarities than there are differences. You know, there's cultural representations and different ways of displaying, you know, your religious rituals or whatever, but really the tenants are the same and people want the same thing. They want to have a good life. They want to look after their family. They want to succeed. So whether they're able to do that, like, as we say, nobody really chooses to take their children and go on a boat over the Mediterranean for fun. You know, it's driven by it's driven by need. And you were at the Direct Provision Centre for four years. So that was a long time and it's supposed to be a temporary setup. But were you seeing the same people over that four years or were you seeing people move on in the majority? No, the Irish system was very slow. And, it, you know, they're coming in to seek asylum and the process to seek asylum could take up to two years between getting their first interview or getting to appeal the decision. And then even that, most people were not... Um, where if they were not successful in getting a refugee status determination, then they would um, put in an application for leave to remain on humanitarian grounds or subsidiary protection. So often people were, I've seen people saw people in the centres for eight to ten years. Obviously, I was there for four, but I, I know children that were born there that were ten by the time they left. And really, it is segregation. You know, they were segregated from society and they weren't able to engage in society and that long of a segregation with not being able to interact, to gain employment, to cook your own food, loss of so much autonomy, you know, has had detrimental effects on people. They've really come out institutionalised. And I mean, kids can be quite innocent to the whole thing. But w when you think of the, the families and the parents to, to come from the situations they'd come from to that to your life on hold and I think this line gets bandied around well it must be better to be there than to be in a war-torn country but I, I don't know to, to, to I don't think so to be honest with you everybody like you said wants to do well wants to protect their family some of these are highly qualified people who want to work who want to engage and they couldn't even really go to a, a cafe and get a coffee and have a chat to somebody in the queue you were literally in this gated community and, and cut off I mean they were able to travel out but they didn't have any money they were given 19 euros a week 19 euros 10 cent a week 950 or 960 for a child so the you know food was provided and given but again you're not cooking your own food you're not transmitting your culture to your children you know a lot of those uh, instances are very important um, so yeah they they weren't able to and often the children are bussed out so they don't even get to meet parents at the school gate other parents where the children were going to the local schools so after direct provision um working there for four years what what came next well that's when i went overseas i think i had i, I went to i took a month out to go to do some voluntary work in tanzania because i had always wanted to go overseas and i wanted to go to africa uh, so I took a month out to do a voluntary work in Tanzania. And then when I was there, I was like, I just have to come back. This is where I want to be working. 
And so. what was that need? What was that spark? I don't know if you can vocalise it, but what was that draw, do you think? I, I don't think it was anything more than I, I, yeah, I was always drawn to it and I kind of felt it was like the love of my life and I had never consummated that. And once I got there, I was like, yes. And it was just a feeling of knowing that this was where I wanted to be. And, you know, even putting it down to, I took a weekend off and went and did um, a safari. There was a local, you know, there was a one close to the city in Dar es Salaam where, where I had been. And I remember being out and it was just the landscape. And I think it was one of the most romantic experiences of my life when I was on my own. But it was just that realization of something that I just somewhere where I had always wanted to go. And I mean, I'm going to say some people, but I'm probably talking about myself. When I think about arriving somewhere like that, I would be afraid. I would be overwhelmed. I would be intimidated and I wouldn't even know where to start. And I, I don't know why I would focus on all the negative instead of all the positive as you're describing it. What is it like when you, you step off the plane? Well, it was quite funny because I, when I arrived in Dar es Salaam airport and waiting for the bags to come out, you know, had gone through the processes and showed my visa, etc. And my yellow fever card, because a lot of countries you have to have a vaccine pass to go into them. And this has been going on a long time. But um, when I was waiting for my bags, the whole electricity in the airport went out and I just laughed because I thought that was, you know, after watching movies and I was like TIA this is Africa so you know I kind of more embraced the experience I wasn't expecting something awful to happen and nothing awful did happen I think it's just my privilege I suppose I'm so used to my creature comforts I'm like where am I going to be staying what's going to be happening how can I really help and it's all ridiculous when it comes down to it when we've already said that people are people and of course, you're going to be moved by those who need help and to be actually doing something is far more positive than just flicking through it online or in a newspaper. I think also, you know, we just have to recognise our own bias as much as we think we don't have any. We, we, we do and they are not necessarily inherent, but they're inbuilt through the way we mediate or navigate the world. So I know, I mean, the last position I went to, I went in, in the Middle East and in, even I had a little bit of reticence. I'd been working in Africa for nine years and then I was like, well, it's a different culture and very different. Would I like it or how will I find it? And went in and, uh, uh, you know, the Yemeni people are some of the most generous, lovely people that you will ever come across in a very difficult situation. So, again, you know, I was challenging or I had to challenge my own bias or, or recognize my own bias. And I would think I'm, you know, non-discriminatory and... Yeah, but it's the messaging we get through, through news stories or whatever it is. And it just begins to get programmed yeah. in the back of our brain and it creates fear and it creates separation. And you're right, the first step is awareness and then you just break through it. So when you arrive to a camp, are you met by a team? You know, is can it be that organized? What, what's it like? Well, so my first real job overseas was um, so while I was in Bosnia I applied for a position through Irish Aid so the deploy a deployment Irish Aid were funding a deployment to UNHCR in Ethiopia in the Somali region to oversee refugee camps so I applied for that and got the position and so again it wasn't 100 miles from what I'd just been doing in Bosnia which was effectively like an, a, a refugee camp in uh, Meath um, but this on a bigger scale. There was three camps with 40,000 refugees. But I was going into a position and, you know, in humanitarian work, like any other businesses, there are processes and tools and, you know, programming that you implement. So you find your, your feet very quickly. 
Um, and the thing about humanitarian work is, you know, there's project management, program management. You have to skill up on the technical speak and how to run certain programs. But again, it's not rocket science. It's it's protection work and it's making communities, um, you know, the essential that the beginning of protection work is community. The family is the first then the community, how people are, are protected. So you're looking at the community and how to support them to keep supporting themselves. Most communities have self-protection mechanisms. They know how to keep themselves safe to a degree from whatever might be there. But then it's, you know, it's giving them the resources or to be able to continue to do that in the in the in the fact that they're facing consistent shock after shock. So they haven't been able to regroup or become more resilient because the next shock has come after them. Like when I was working in Liberia, it was they were post-conflict coming out of a very horrific civil war. They'd lost a generation of vocational skills because a whole skill set of adults hadn't gone through an educational system. Country, like they say, civil war sets the country back at least 20 years. So on top of that, with still some cross-border attacks going on and certain rebel groups wanting to destabilize the area, then came Ebola. So, you know, these areas were just never able to kind of get back up and running, as well as, you know, consistent cross-border attacks. So it's, again, communities are resilient, and you could see when Ebola came, communities would close themselves off and they wouldn't let anybody in. That's a self-protection mechanism to seclude themselves or sequester themselves so that the harm can't get in. So you recognise that there is self-protection mechanisms everywhere, and it's to work with that and support them. And it's interesting when, when trauma hits, it really goes back to the basics, doesn't it? And I suppose even here in the Western world, we've had a, a taste of it with the pandemic hitting that we all just stayed in our homes. And once you kind of kept fed and, you know, perhaps got out for a walk, that was maybe the best you were going to do on that day and check in with the vulnerable around you and in. And I suppose that's a, an eye opener for us that that can be what it's like in other areas of the world. Yeah, I think one of the hardest things that I came across or, you know, coming back from working through Ebola was, I think it was August 2015 or 2014, after the first peak had, had waned and over 3,000 people had died in, in Liberia, like 10,000 in the, in, the, in the three West African countries. And coming back into Europe for a holiday and there had been one case in the nurse that had come back from Sierra Leone, the Scottish nurse, I think, came back from Sierra Leone to the UK, and there was a case in the US, and the whole of the West went crazy about these one cases, whereas, you know, 10,000 people had just died, and it, you know, wasn't given huge amount. So that was a, an epidemic because it was, you know, contained in yeah. a certain area. So Number, Numbers-wise. Yes, and then we jumped to a pandemic, and even then it was looked upon as you know, people maybe in illiterate societies didn't understand the disease or didn't know how to respond to it. Again, it was to do with, you know, overwhelming of health systems. There was no health infrastructure there in the first place. And then people were afraid and the messaging that went out was varied and incorrect. So people ran and, the, and then the disease spread because, you know, they didn't have the right messaging or know how to stop it from spreading. And again, and, you know, it took the same thing for a global pandemic. We, we had to go through something similar you know, it took every government dealt with it quite differently. I lived through I lived in four different countries during um, COVID and each country dealt with it in a different way. In in Yemen, the government refused to even accept that it, it existed and it was in the country. 
So we're so reliant on leadership, aren't we? And the knock on effect that that has. And I ask this of a lot of the people I've had on this podcast. How do you reconcile with assisting on the ground and bringing your expertise and, and skill set there and battling with what's going on at the top that perhaps you can't change or certainly not overnight? No, you can't change it overnight. And I think at the, you know, with the, the important part is to be able to bring up the evidence and show what's going on in these countries. So in, in one way, the work that, you know, we do in, in the humanitarian field is immediate life-saving assistance, you know, giving access to clean drinking water, you know, sewage systems, giving shelter, giving cash, giving food, which is, you know, immediate an immediate response. But, you know, most of the situations, especially if they're man-made conflicts, need a political solution. So another part of, of the work is advocacy, coordination and advocacy, and making sure that messaging is getting up to the right people at the right time. And, you know, that's different. There's different audiences. You know, it could be to get to the general population, to raise consciousness or awareness for other people to take action in their respective countries. It could be to go directly up to, through the system, through the Security Council, so the UN agencies or, or the NGOs can... Um, lobby and advocate to the Security Council to try and, you know, take some political decision again up through the, the, the European Union. So you have a lot of different bodies where, who fund humanitarian work um, to say what programs they will support on the ground. But also the, the other side is the information goes back up there to form advocacy. So this can either go, as I said, into big global awareness campaigns or to lobby, you know, at a political level for a political solution. So you're very much part of the chain. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's being on the ground, having the up to date information, being able to get it up there is, is very important. And what is it like then in a refugee camp? What is the the feeling? How unnerving is it? How unsafe is it? How disorganized is it? Or is that how you view it when you arrive there? So there's a lot of different approaches and some countries have, you know, a no camp policy, which means they they try to, to, to not go into um, a camp-like situation, but they will give assistance, whether it's shelter, to build your emergency shelter, um, to people so that they don't form a camp-like setting, which can become more permanent and, you know, could also inhibit people returning when it is safe. So a lot of there's a lot of out-of-camp policies going on. Um, generally, the basis of a lot of this, of a lot of... Um, working with displacement is empowering the community so you you even if it's a new community I mean people have are displaced from different areas but they're in a, a geographical area together a leadership and a natural leadership generally does form within the community so you work with it with the members of of these community structures you know there's a lot of community engagement whether it is to support the most vulnerable in their communities to help if we can give shelter they have to help build them if we're going to have some funding to build uh, wells and water points that you know the communities can contribute labor um, by helping to dig so it's and, and also to be able to represent themselves so we work with the community so that they understand what their rights are and we work then with the stakeholders whether it's local government you know understanding what their duties are to these people and create mechanisms where they're able to advocate for what they need and um, work with the instruments there. 
And so interesting that you're at the forefront of, of human need when everything else is stripped away. It's those same things that you've sort of said throughout the conversation, that need for community, that need for empowerment, that need to belong, that need to protect the vulnerable. It's there and that's what you're there to assist, but it, it's there automatically. And part of me thinks, God, they've come from such trauma. They probably need psychotherapy and, and help with that. But you've got to literally go back to the basics first and, and rebuild what's around before you can even deal with all of that. Yeah, and I suppose depending on the context, but we would try to employ, because there isn't enough resources to, to give everybody what they need. There isn't enough resources for all the need. When you're talking about these huge um, humanitarian crises, you're talking about millions and millions of people um, in need of food or different forms of assistance, whether it's shelter, medical support, you know, mental health is often further down the chain, unfortunately, and it's one of the really important ones. But working again with these community structures and layering different projects on top that you help the community support the most vulnerable or you, you help them with the most essential life-saving services, whether it's, whether it's access to drinkable water, whether it's sanitation so that you know, it'll ward off disease and understand that you're coming in from a holistic approach to support the community so that they can still help themselves so that the, the ones who can try to find some access to livelihoods or to be able to work or support their family can and that the ones that aren't are, are able to be supported as well. So really is it a holistic approach to give them as much or to give communities what you can in order that they can mobilise themselves to support each other. And this isn't nine to five work. I mean, what's a day in the life of a, a, an aid worker? I suppose depending on what your position is. So when I was running a refugee camp, I was the camp manager. It was literally every day in the camp, you know, but between the hours, you know, like a working day, we would be there. And when you're in the camp, you know, you're working with, again, the community structures. I would like in the refugee camp in Liberia, I had maybe we had a team of 50 staff that every morning we'd be in a three cars and it was like getting everybody out of school. Go, go, go. <laughs> you know, because the camp was 17 kilometers away. And we'd get there, but we also, you know, it's a, it's a camp of 10,000 um, people that was expanding. So you needed to build shelter and th these camps were planned. So, you know, you'd have lines and rows and sanitation structures and recreational kind of areas where they could kick a football or um, have some space. But, you know, so I think we had 150 incentive workers, which would have been from the refugee community who were always wor were also working at the team. So everybody was it was very codependent kind of existence and it was wonderful as well so everybody is you know all the meetings were with the refugee structures they are able to communicate the needs coming up from them we were able to communicate okay what's what are the resources available and how are we going to do this together so the working day would be in the camp all day and you know we, we were doing everything we were building schools you know paying the teachers we were building shelters site planning you know, in putting latrines, etc., and then then you come home at night time and you'd have to do all your admin and your paperwork and stuff like that. But at the same time, it was it's probably one of my favorite jobs because you are really in working with the community and seeing changes happen, you know, in real time. I suppose. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And do you cut yourself off from your family, from your friends? Is contact minimal because of where you are and, and what you're doing? Or, or do you want that laser focus? I think it's just the work is all encompassing and it's so busy that you, you know, I would work probably 16 hours a day, six days a week. Um, and then, you know, but I've learned to have balance. And then if I'm managing teams, I want to make sure that they have balance. So we do try to organize it unless it is full-on emergency that there is time for people you know to avoid burnout exactly um so no i'll be in contact with family and friends but um at the same time um you're there so you're just your head is 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 there basically i i kind of feel because i always take longer missions so i feel like i live there and that's my place of being and then i go on holidays from there so I don't, you know, and I've been working overseas for 12 years now. So I kind of, you know, when I come back to Ireland, I stay with my father and I never generally stay for more than a few weeks um, at a time. So I kind of feel like I'm visiting Ireland, even though I have a, you know, big fabric and a, a big network. And um, but it, when I'm in a country, I feel that's where I live and I'm out visiting. So I don't feel like I'm missing out. A friend of mine asked me once, she was like, do you miss us when you're away? And I was like. Honestly, the only thing I miss is wine. <laughs> really don't I'm, sh- I'm sure she loved that. <laughs> <laughs> and the first time, do you remember coming back to Ireland to, as I mentioned it before, the, the creature comforts? Is it hard then to come away knowing what you know and settle back and, and hear the likes of us talking about how the temperature has got a little bit colder or, you know, our sky remote isn't working? Is that difficult for you to to listen to after being at the uh, on the front line of some uh, real humanitarian crisis? I mean, I think, you know, I think a lot of things are relative. So, you know, you do understand, you know, in Ireland, if people have situations that are stressful for them, they're very legitimately stressful. I think we've also come to a point that we all understand the phrase first world problems and we're able to laugh at ourselves when we say that. So I think, that, you know, people do understand and, you know, when they realise that maybe it's not the worst, it's a way of countering the stress themselves because things could be a lot worse. I've never had a problem kind of traversing the two. Um, I really enjoy new cultures and places when I go to see them. And then equally, I, you know, I love when I come back. I mean, I've never been a massive proponent of the West, but sit down toilets and equality legislation are, you know, my favorite things in the world. <laughs> and wine. <laughs> yeah, and wine. <laughs> but I remember we, I was coming back one time and a friend of mine, you know, asked me, did I want to go camping? And I was like, camping? I was like, 
my life is camping. I want, I want technology. I want restaurants. I want to go shopping. So no, I, you know, I enjoy when I work and then I enjoy, you know, having time off and coming back to comforts and luxuries. So are you led as to what's going on in the world as to where you go next? So I, I have been working with the same organization for the past nine years, but I took some time off after Yemen. I was in Yemen for three years. And so, you know, you've got an active conflict, a civil war. You've got big migration problems. You've got a huge displacement. You have famine-like conditions um, eroding household uh, economies. And on top of that then came COVID. And I think in... March 2020, I got locked in the wrong country for three months. So I got stuck in Jordan as they shut down the airspace in Yemen and then Jordan. So as this was on the onset of COVID. And so I had to manage this double emergency remotely because we also, the government, as I said, the government was denying that there was any COVID in the country. And even though we had colloquial evidence, unless it comes out of the Ministry of Health, nobody can report on it. So we were seeing it happen and we were seeing graves, you know, not mass graves, but, you know, m much more graves being um, dug. We had all our staff members who had had family members who had died from COVID or who had gotten sick from COVID. So we know it's there, but the government isn't. And so there was no uh, mechanisms being put in place to stop it. So we had to reorientate everything to make sure that we could stay and deliver the, the humanitarian assistance that they needed already. And then also keep them safe and keep our staff safe while we we're doing it. Because we were feeding, and we were only just one of the organizations, we were feeding 800,000 people a month. We were giving cash, shelter, you know, to people that were displaced. So we had to do these distributions and make sure that they were safe. We had to make sure our drivers were safe um, that, you know, people, you know, because you still have compliance mechanisms. It's not just throwing a bag of rice over, you know, off the side of a truck. It's this huge compliance mechanisms that people's, you know, identification is checked and they have to sign. So we had to make all of those systems safe. So it was a very, you know, it was huge part and the knock-on effect was the fact that the, you know by the government denying the existence of any cases was that they weren't eligible then for you know the global competition for for resources like so they couldn't ask for ppe or oxygen or infibulators because they weren't showing any cases in and so a, a health system that was on its knees barely functioning you know wasn't able to to support or react to it whatsoever. And how do you keep your head together in all of that? Do you have tools that you rely on to keep yourself sane? I mean, I, I don't think any of people who are in the humanitarian world would actually call themselves the more sane of the population. But um, I mean, I enjoy the work and there's a huge need. So I think the motivation is that there's always something to be done. Um, now, as I said, in order to avoid burnout, you have to make sure that you do get some rest and you are taking time out and, you know, during stressful situations that I suppose I know myself that if I get stressed, I tense up. So just to find a way to, you know, take a few minutes out and go for a walk or in the garden, whatever, to, to respond to that and then you're able to get back. Yeah, but you're staying focused on the immediate need and fulfilling that. And yes, as you said, you're part of the chain for what's going on at the top, but you can't let that paralyze you in what's needed on the ground the frustration that you may have with the systems that are well i mean some of the, amplifying yes, what's going on i mean a lot of my job in the in the last position as kind of country director for running a country program for an ngo 
you know, we've quite a big program. We have 550 staff, we've 10 offices, you know, we've multiple programs, millions of dollars worth of, of assistance going out. Um, but I think the biggest frustration there was that there was big obstacles put in place by the de facto authorities who were actually trying to stop you from giving assistance to the populations. And, and I think that's the, the hardest and the most frustrating part of it is that you actually have the assistance. You had warehouses of mattresses and shelter materials, um, you know, buckets and uh, household kits for people, and they wouldn't let us go access the areas, you know, and this was again very authoritative regime that wanted to control you know where the assistance went um, and what they did with it so a lot of time was actually spent in negotiation in um trying to fight these impediments trying to to you know you had to do a lot of coordination a lot of meetings to get everybody on board to try and stand up to these and, and show that they were you know, against humanitarian principles and we weren't able to operate in a principled way, which is important for, you know, being able to run humanitarian programs. And you do hear that anecdotally, people talking about giving aid overseas. Sure, the government there is corrupt. It's not going to get there. We have to look over after our own first. Why would I be sending it out there when there's so much need here in my own country? What's your reaction to that kind of mindset when you can see the value of aid and how necessary the funding is. I mean, we, we do spend a lot of time trying to combat it and, you know, there's a lot of compliance that has to take place. And, you know, there's been instances where I've had to stop programs because we can't ensure that we are able to monitor and make sure that the assistance is going to the right place. So, you know, we, you know, it's a hard call to make to say that, OK, we're not going to do this distribution because we can't. We can't confirm if 25 the government you know or that if the authorities are taking 25 percent so but oftentimes you know a lot of work goes into as i said coordination and getting people on board to try and address this at a at, a, at quite a high level uh but i would also say you know there's there's a lot of causes out there and there's many different things and i think people just need to re respond to what works for them you know it could be homelessness it could be a, a refugee situation it could be you know children's hospitals not being um, funded appropriately. And so just move with, you know, what works for you. There is a huge inequality in the world. Most of us who are going to be listening to this aren't at the the rough end of that. So there's also, there's always something that we can do. So I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't, I would just, yeah, say to go with what motivates you. You don't have to give to something if you don't believe in it, but do find something that you do care about. Yeah. Um and are children the most vulnerable in a refugee crisis? So, I mean, vulnerability is a, is a temporary status. So, you know, and they say that it's often like women and children are vulnerable. Um, but like, you know, I would, I'm a woman. I don't consider myself vulnerable. So you're vulnerable maybe if you're a woman, uh, you're a female-headed household, you have children, you have no income, you're in a context where maybe there isn't safety precautions and there could be, you know, possibility of sexual violence going on. So you're vulnerable because you... you can't be safe and you don't have the protective um, supports, as we said, whether it was your family or your community or ex your pre-existing community. So vulnerability can be, um, it uh, is temporary, but at the same time, in protracted refugee situations or internal displacement, IDPs, um, a lot of 
I think traditionally a lot of the livelihoods and stuff would have, you know, gone through, especially in patriarchal societies or quite conservative societies, would have gone to the men. Um, whereas you have a lot of women who, you know, when women get in, when women are in charge of the household income, 80% goes into the family. When men, I think the percentage is halved. So it's important that we're able to get the assistance into the hands of uh, the head of the household, predominantly if that's a female headed household. Because I think it's a lot of the images that come from whether it's a, a refugee camp or crisis are these displaced children and you're just picturing kids under 10 or you're seeing images of of teenagers who are displaced from their own families and what happens in that situation because I I, I often think of them or in war-torn countries they become child soldiers and all kinds of things happen to them I suppose you're putting the structures in place to ensure that doesn't happen and that's why the community gets built up yeah and if you think about your own community as well I mean access to education children being in school you know for five hours a day your children or if it's seven hours are in school and they're safe and you can do something else whether it's you know looking after a household or having to go out to work um so in you know situations like this often there hasn't been there isn't access to uh, education children are in danger of you know being going out for child labor they have to go out and beg or they have to try and find some work at a very young age so again they're exposed to all the dangers that any child in, in that kind of environment or an adult environment could be and then families when they have lost any other coping mechanisms and they all you know everybody naturally goes to negative coping mechanisms and that could be early early marriage for young girls it could be sending you know children brought into recruitment um, having to go into labor so uh, again part of the safekeeping of, you know, in child protection is trying to make sure that we are able to put in education programs, that we are able to do, you know, support parents in how to deal with these situations or parenting in this kind of context. And then, you know, having other, establishing other committees like, you know, like a community, what do we have here? You know, the same kind of thing. So you have community safety mechanisms where people will look, you know, somebody in charge of each row so that they are keeping each other safe and also to make sure that we have money for lighting and electricity and all those other things because it is worse in the dark. And tell me a bit about Afghanistan then because I think it's it's quite um, in the forefront of people's minds because we've all been looking at the, the images of people at the airport in Kabul panicking, trying to get out their lives completely upside down and destroyed and a lot of us are looking at it feeling you know sadness um and uh, an an empathy towards those people you're thinking i need to get there i need to get myself organized and and get there and help i mean i think that there has been a great job with the media being being able to portray you know the fall of kabul was horrendous to see uh on on the media but it wasn't the whole story because not everybody left and you know there's 30 odd million people i'm not sure the population but lots of millions of people in afghanistan and they weren't all at the airport like not everybody was able to leave and not everybody is going to leave um and a lot of organizations didn't leave so there was organizations people stayed there to stay with their teams to see if they could still continue to do it to you know to operate so um I mean, I think at this point, you know, again, and you have to take 
with a pinch of salt what you do see on the media because they do have a certain story to tell sometimes um what do you mean by that well i mean i think that's very sensationalist to, to show the, the airport. airport but to look at the the other side of the picture of the, the people that are staying or the fact that the, Pal- the Taliban are the de facto authorities right now. Um, and so life is going on for the rest of them. It's, you know, people are worried and they don't know what's about to happen. But I, the way I'm viewing it at the moment is that the Taliban are looking for international recognition. They're taking back control of the country. And in order to have international cooperation, they know that they're going to have to comply with certain human rights or, or gender empowerment initiatives. Um, they're not ready to do that because the regime is, you know, the regime has taken over. Like the Taliban, you have to remember, is part of the fabric of, of Afghanistan. It's been there for a long time. And most families, you know, people, it's an ideology for some. And a lot of people could be just regular farmers who would believe in this ideology. So you have families that maybe during the course of the the government that was installed, that was elected, would have had maybe sending a son to a, to the Taliban and another son to work with the government army because people know that they are part of the fabric of, of the country. I do think, you know, we'll wait and see that this Taliban 2.0 will, will materialise. But as I said, I, I believe that they're going to look for international cooperation. And, you know, right now, again, I heard from friends, the girls aren't going back to school. Girls that they you know they're not letting girls go back to school, but what had happened was the boys have gone back to school because they're going to bring in segregation. They hadn't established how they're going to have these segregated female schools yet, but that's still on the mindset. So, you know, messages are coming out and people are forming ideas already when it hasn't completely been elaborated. So, we do need to understand what's going to happen. I think one of the big problems, though, currently with this regime is that with their people in, you know, they don't have a system in place for governance of their own. Sounds funny calling them staff, but of the leaders their in their the own organization. Communities. Yeah. So you have maybe at the central level in Kabul, some of the leaders saying, yes, we're going to do this. We're going to allow women back to work. We're going to allow girls go to school. But you might have some rogue guy in the equivalent of Kerry going, no, I'll shoot a girl who goes to school or something like that. So that hasn't been stabilized yet stabilized sounds like a funny word to be using for afghanistan but it's in its infancy it's yes. developing and ultimately they're not looking for somebody to come and take over and hopefully at some point there could be elections going forward but for now they're in control of this country of a huge population and a huge huge humanitarian need so in order to be able to support them we have to see what's going on because we will need to be able to help and it didn't sit well with me, this focus on the Irish that were there. And I know I'm looking at an Irish news bulletin and an Irish news station. And yes, we're talking about equality and anybody who wants to leave the country should be given the supports to leave that country. But that focus and forgetting about the others that were going to just live in that, it just, as you say, it only seemed to be such a small part of the story. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we need governments and people in power to look at what's going on in these situations you know it is only at this point you know that they have to respond for years most of refugee situations are you know refugee influxes go into a neighboring country in Africa in in the Middle East you know they're all next door it's only since Syria that we've seen the biggest influx of people coming into Europe and that started you know to send governments crazy um what is needed 
is again governments to understand that you know asylum is a human right people you know we need to ensure a safe passage for people when they're moving and then that we have to look in you know because the root causes of the conflict are often inequality exclusion you know no access to resources these are impacted more than by you know climate shocks and different things so there's a lot of volatility going on that you know these are systemic underlying problems that need to be addressed and so we do need political will at the highest level to be able to address and support these and currently at the moment we have a lot of western nations kind of thinking it's somebody else's responsibility when you know the reason we know you know there has been foreign intervention in these crises as well which has support you know has impacted the stem of flow of people and we could lead by example can't we i mean with the marriage equality referendum that became a global story even with the smoking ban that became a global story and these are very different but if you have different rules for asylum seekers in your country that begins to transmit across the world. It can make a difference. One small country and their story with the way we've globalised our news can actually make a difference and Absolutely. change. Absolutely, and I think Ireland is, you know, in, in the last few years with this wave of populism, you know, going over most of the Western world and even in, in Europe, that Ireland, you know, stood ahead above, head and shoulders above the rest when they were actually being very progressive in introducing marriage equality um, and you know, the possibility of abortion. So again, yes, absolutely. If we can promote this being, uh, you know, a land of welcomes and supporting um, this refugee process. And again, as I said, you know, not to, to forget our cultural history where we have gone to every corner of the world. I don't know if you saw that Liam Neeson documentary on the famine. And, you know, it was 1847 when people were, you know, going on the boats to the US and to Britain and everything and like millions and millions um, and very harrowing stories but it was exactly the same as yeah. what's happening arriving with nothing yeah. you know with no name and address of who to follow no mobile phone with Google Maps no bag of clothes even on your back and no knowledge of when you may ever see your family or loved ones again so yes it's a very it's just, I, similar I story very easy thing to do is just always put yourself in that position because they aren't very different so just put yourself in the shoes of that person because that could be you you know if the tables are turned I do really remember a time in my life where the penny dropped because I think in school because we all had the troker box it was very much an us and them kind of thing and that it was a very different world and that we could help but that was it was still there was a separateness and I think it was becoming a mum and having a baby asleep in a cot and I was flicking through a magazine and I was reading about women in Sudan walking to camps with their babies on their back and when they got there I could actually cry even thinking of them now their babies would be dead on their back and they wouldn't know and I just really said that's me they're the exact same as me. They want to feed their baby. They want to protect their baby. They carry their baby. They're not different. And I remember that so well. And I've never really let it go. And I think we do. We think it's somebody else's problem in the same way our leaders do some of the time. What about your personal safety then? If I know you're interviewing at the minute to go to Afghanistan and, and get involved there. Do you ever think that you're putting your life on the line for your work? Or do you allow that to come into your your psyche no I mean fear isn't really a, a word in my vocabulary unless we're talking about rats or sharks which is 
phobia, I suppose. Um, other than that, not really, because, you know, generally with the organizations that you're going into, there's a huge amount of safety protocols and systems. Like when we were in, in conflict zone, you know, we had to live in compounds with, you know, four meter high security fencing. You weren't allowed out in the street if you had to go on a field. If you're going to the field, you have to get a travel permit. Your, your coordinates have to go to a certain administration so you get deconfliction so they're not going to um, target you so even um, within war there's organization there is yes because there's, there's there is instruments that that govern war there's the international humanitarian law that states that groups cannot target civilian infrastructure or um persons so in humanitarian work our coordinates of our distributions or offices would be given to uh the opposing uh, regime so that they wouldn't actually target our buildings. In saying that, um, I did get, yeah, in, was it November, August 2019, there was like a mini coup in, in the south of Yemen in Aden. It was kind of like a civil war within a civil war. So we were stuck in hibernation for five days when there was RPGs flying overhead, you know, we couldn't leave. But in every office, and this is in conflict zone, so it's not every context that we're talking about. You know, if you're going into other places, it's not necessarily, it could be more development orientated programming, so you're not in an active conflict. But in the conflict areas, you know, all of our offices and guest houses would have a safe room, you know, with hibernation stocks. So your, your safety protocols are either relocation, evacuation, or hibernation. And so if there's no possibility for relocation or evacuation, then you hibernate. And you bunker down until the conflict has stopped or, you know, there's been a ceasefire to let you go out. Wow, I think it's incredible what you do. We talked about making a difference and what we can do to support people like you. What are the best things to do? I know we touched on aid and, you know, finding a, a cause that you believe in and following that. But lobbying our leaders does that make a difference particularly looking at afghanistan and the numbers of refugees that we're allowing in does it make a difference if we email our our tds what's the best thing to do yes i would say absolutely and right now is a perfect time because ireland is on the security council for two years so we've got an even more prominent position than normal um like i've seen advocacy in action and working there was a there was a time it was our 2018 and we knew that there was an assault on Hodeida it was the port in um north yemen coming from from the saudi-led coalition and it was known that there was an imminent you know they were they had cornered or um circled the other party there and the other forces so it was known that this attack was going to come but there was going to be huge um humanitarian crisis, huge loss of life, huge displacement based on it. And a lot of the organizations in the humanitarian community mobilized their advocacy, got the information out, got the messaging out, and it went, you know, around the global news cycles. People started to, you know, lobby in America, lobby in France, in different countries. And it stopped the onslaught on the, the, the assault. So there is, you know, I think concerted action, you know, wherever you are is possible. And then we've seen this, you know, in the last few years with Black Lives Matter, with different things is that, you know, I think it's time to to mobilize and have voices heard and they can be heard in different ways. And so whether you do it alone or you, you, you know, start a campaign to get more people and then lobby the politicians, I think is the best way. 
also you know if that's the crisis that you're talking about but the other thing is always at home is to start volunteering doing whatever just keeping yourself up to date checking on your bias making sure that people in your community are welcomed I think it's going to take me a while to process everything that you have said during this interview. Thank you for letting me pick apart your brain. But I think essentially the message has been simple, that people are people and uh, everyone deserves to, to live as a, as a human being, as a functioning human being. But I think we have a, I think this is, you know, a perfect storm in a good way at the moment because of, as you said, the empathy that people felt when they saw that was going on in Afghanistan and after coming out of this pandemic and also seeing what we can do globally exactly and i think this is the time you know to to find ways forward and how to support the people that are the most vulnerable audrey crawford thank you so so much thank you claire thank you for listening to change makers if you enjoyed the podcast i would love if you would take a moment to rate review and subscribe it helps other people to find the podcast too take care Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 